Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moeck, AXA Group Chief Economist. Weeks go by and the outlook changes for the ECB, turning massive and reassuring investment capacity into what increasingly looks like constrained capacity. Central bank limits may not be an issue in the UK, yet the country has its share of concerns. You will have the privilege of hearing David Page explain them to you today. Is head of macroeconomic research at AXA Investment Managers. And because it is sometimes more eloquent than your humble servant, music will once again enlighten this podcast and it will allow me to indulge once again in my weird liking for 1970s music. Today is Monday, May the 18th. I am Gilles Moeck and you are listening to Macrocast. We were thoroughly impressed by the ECB at the end of March when after some communication glitches, that chose to provide massive additional support through the 750 billion euros worth pandemic emergency purchase program, the PPP, on top of the 120 billion euros boost to the old public sector purchasing program, the PSPP. Together with announced flexibility in the way the usual limits to QE would be implemented, this made us hopeful there would be enough to support governments as they substitute public spending to constricted private expenditure through the pandemic. Unfortunately, the risk that the ECB would run on empty much earlier than the end of the year, the provisional term of PPP, is now very real. We are faced with a nasty circularity. The doubts on the capacity of the central bank to provide unlimited support, strengthened by the recent German constitutional court ruling we discussed last week, are fueling an acceleration in sales of government securities in the most fragile member states, forcing the ECB to buy large quantities of bonds to keep spreads in check. This puts the central bank under pressure to raise its quantum of purchases in the next few council meetings already. But since this may entail politically sensitive decisions on its limits, investors may want to further accelerate their offloading. Philip Lane, the chief economist of the ECB, made the readiness to fight fragmentation in financial conditions in the area crystal clear in his blog post on May the 1st. I quote, in the absence of the stabilizing presence of the central bank, a crisis environment can give rise to self-fulfilling fly-to-safety dynamics and illiquidity in individual sovereign bond markets on account of the high substituability across sovereign bond markets in the absence of currency risk. End of quote. This was echoed by Isabel Schnabel in an interview to La Repubblica on May the 11th, and in the post-GCC context, it was very important that it came from the German member of the board. I quote again, the divergence of spreads is often a sign of fragmentation, and such fragmentation hampers the smooth transmission of our monetary policy. End of quote. This readiness is concretely reflected in the very significant acceleration in purchases in the week to May the 8th, with a jump from a daily pace of 4.4 billion euros a day to 8.5 billion euros a day. If such pace is maintained, the PEPP would run out of resources before the end of this summer. From the start, the ECB made it plain that they could always change the duration and composition of the program if need be. This does not mean it's going to be easy. The Governing Council needs to deal with two different issues. First, on substance, they may have to make a choice between two of their limits when raising the quantum of purchases. According to research by Barclays, the Eurosystem's holdings 
stood at 29% of eligible German sovereign and sovereign-like bonds before PEPP even started. With a strict compliance with a capital key, the ECB would hit the 33% limit within six months under the 750 billion euros quantum, assuming a regular distribution of the program over time. The ECB will start publishing granular data on its PEPP program only in June, with a bimonthly frequency. But it's probably a fair assumption, given Christine Lagarde's insistence on flexibility, to consider that a very significant deviation from the capital key is at work on the PPP as well as on the PSPP, through which Italian bonds are already benefiting from massive support. The share in PSPP, which is already public, is now almost twice the share of Italy in the ECB's shareholding. Mechanically, a bigger PPP quantum will force an even larger deviation from the capital key. The tactical timing of the decision on PPP is the second issue. Announcing an increase in PPP at the June 4 meeting already, before any solution to the legal predicament can be found, could be seen as a provocation after the German constitutional court ruling. Symmetrically, staying put at the next meeting could be seen by the market as a lack of resolve, accelerating divestment from the fragile signatures. The ECB would then only have one more chance left on the July 16th meeting. Based on the latest purchasing pace, the central bank will have spent 71% of the PEPP envelope by then. Note that if the purchasing pace had to increase beyond 13 billion euros a day, for instance, as a need to counteract miscommunication at the June press conference, all the current PEPP capacity would be spent by July the 16th. It is always preferable for a central bank to be proactive rather than being forced into additional action by market forces. On balance, announcing a PPP extension in June already would be the preferable course of action in our view. Now, there might be some possible compromise solutions for the June meeting. ECB's communication so far suggests the reinvestment period is considered for reconverging towards the capital key. We were disappointed at the last ECB press conference that Christine Lagarde touched upon the reinvestment schedule of the PSPP, but chose not to address this when it came to the future of PEPP. This is key. Since the longer the reinvestment period is, the easier it will be to slowly move away from the current overweighting of Southern Europe. She could focus on this aspect in June. Beyond allowing for some delayed but effective compliance with the capital key, a long reinvestment period for PEPP would help deal with the macroeconomic consequences of the pandemic. Since the beginning of this crisis, we've been arguing that the duration of the support matters as much, if not more, than the quantum. If we cannot monetize the debt overhang, which is going to be a likely consequence of the ongoing recession, at least we can endeavor to sterilize its market effect. A commitment to reinvest the PEPP over a long horizon would improve debt sustainability conditions by ensuring ordinary investors that a regular, not profit-motivated buyer would remain in the most fragile markets well beyond the recoveries established. The reinvestment horizon of the PSPP is vague. I quote, for an extended period of time past the date when we start raising the key ECB interest rates and in any case for as long as necessary to maintain favorable liquidity conditions and an ample degree of monetary accommodation, end of quote. If the governing council considers it is too early to increase PEPP in June already, a commitment from the ECB that PEPP would be reinvested for longer than PSPP on June the 4th would be welcome in our view.
If there is a country where the government should not be too concerned by institutional hurdles to the central bank's capacity to help it, it's the UK. The country stands out among advanced economies for the limits to its central bank's independence. Setting the explicit inflation target remains firmly in the purview of the government, and failure to deliver on it forces the Bank of England to justify itself in a letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. The operational framework still presents vestiges of monetary funding of fiscal policy. The so-called Ways and Means Facility, which is in practice a temporary overdraft to the Treasury, has just been reactivated. This would not pass muster in the euro area. Although the bank chose on May the 6th to refrain from announcing an expansion of its current QE program, we have never doubted that massive QE would always be on offer, if need be, with none other limits the ECB is facing. We fear that the UK may well need all the Bank of England's readiness to help to deal with its current predicament. To understand this fear, I ask for David Page's wise explanations. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us uh, today. And uh, before anything else, uh, let me know how you're doing. Oh, well, reasonably well uh, for, for this time of the week. And uh, of course, in the UK, we've got the sun out. So there is at least some positives coming through from the UK and, and, and that helps as well. Okay, this might be as much positivity as we're going to get uh, in this podcast today. Um, well, to start with with the beginning, uh, David, um, could we say that the UK is having what we could call a good pandemic? No, I, I don't think we could say that at all. Um, I think we can look at a number of issues for the UK, but, but certainly starting with the virus. Uh, the UK now has the third largest number of cases reported globally behind the US and Russia. And obviously, the UK has a much smaller population in those countries. So it, it's got quite a, a large number of reported cases uh, where we had seen UK cases increase similar to, to what we'd seen across Europe, albeit with a couple of weeks lag. We're actually seeing the caseload, the new cases slowing much more slowly than, than we saw it across Europe. Um, and in the last week or so, although there had been a gradual declining trend in the number of new cases, that, that even that seemed to level off at, at around 3,500 per day. So the number of reported cases is relatively high in the UK. The death rate is also high in the UK, both by comparison to the number of reported cases, which may suggest that actually the UK has underreported some of its cases or, or, or not counted all of the cases correctly, but also in terms of per capita. And that's somewhat worrying in itself. And it's not obvious why the UK's death rate per capita should be so high. So now I think on a number of cases or a number of counts, the, the UK's uh, can't be described as having a good virus. And of course, as that um, affects healthcare throughout the UK, it also affects the economy. Um, and the UK, although it began very, very tentative measures to start easing restrictions, looks like it's going to have to wait a little bit longer before the virus allows it to open up and to ease its restrictions more generally. And how is this you know, impacting uh, the data, the economic data, GDP, industry production, and so, and so forth? Because you know, the beginning of the year was, was, was better in the UK than, than in the rest of Europe, right? Yeah, Q1 GDP only fell relative, uh, relatively uh, small, by relatively small amounts, by 2% quarter on quarter, um, which is comparable more with um, Germany than it is, for example, with France. But to some extent, that reflected the fact that the UK lockdown started a little bit later and that for all of Europe, um, France, Germany, Italy and the UK um, together, 
Q1 was really only the tip of the iceberg. We expect that the big fall to come through in Q2. And at the moment, we're not seeing a great deal of data for the UK on that. Um, what we are tracking in terms of real-time data, for example, electricity production, shows a shortfall in electricity production of around 20% compared to what we'd seen before. So it does suggest quite a meaningful drop in economic activity in Q2. And our forecasts are for us to see quite a sharp drop come through in Q2 um, GDP growth of the UK. We are looking at something close to 20% quarter-on-quarter drop. And indeed, when we think of um, institutions like the Office for Budget Responsibility or the Bank of England, although they've not issued formal forecasts, their scenarios are for an even sharper drop than that. So we haven't got a great deal of data telling us quite how much of an economic impact there is, but certainly everything to us looks like it's going to be a very sharp economic impact in the short term. Yeah, thank you, David. And in this context, what is the policy space and, and, and how could it be used to, to influence the situation? Well, the UK is relatively flexible in its policy space. Um, certainly thinking of monetary policy and by comparison to for the rest of Europe, for example, uh, the Bank of England has a degree more freedom as to how it can operate. Uh, it doesn't have the political constraints of the ECB. It can act somewhat more like the Federal Reserve, but in some senses without the responsibilities of the Federal Reserve. So we do expect to see Um, as well as the 200 billion quantitative easing and the and the 65 basis points in rates cuts we've already seen, we're expecting to see another 100 billion in quantitative easing announced next month in June. And we think there's scope for further quantitative easing before year end. So the Bank of England can continue to provide monetary policy stimulus to try and offset some of this, albeit that that stimulus might be constrained. The Chancellor has also continued to enact further fiscal stimulus. We saw an extension to the furloughing programme for jobs um, last week um, at an expected cost of somewhere north of 20 billion, but nevertheless trying to cushion some of the impact, some of the negative economic impact on wider household incomes. The UK's borrowing is likely to rise sharply. The Office of Budget Responsibility is talking about somewhere around a 300 billion increase. Um, in public, in, in the deficit across the course of this year, which is you know, large um, and does provide some longer term constraints. But like everywhere else, the UK has the capability of borrowing more and probably that increased borrowing to provide more stimulus is likely to reduce the longer term costs of this. Um, so even though the debt level could rise sharply, it is still probably better than not stimulating the economy. So it has some freedom of space there. Um, and both that monetary and fiscal stimulus should be able to support the economy. Of course, the only caveat to that is one of the UK's other policies is with regards Brexit. Brexit negotiations aren't proceeding particularly well, and that does threaten a supply, a further supply shock towards the end of the year. Um, but we're not 100% convinced that that's an outcome we're likely to. Well, thank you for, for your point of view, David. Um, and God knows how we, we value it. Is there a specific risk on the on the exchange rate uh, in the UK and, and thus on, on inflation from this you know, uh, wide policymic space? Yeah, we certainly think there is. Uh, and our outlook for sterling certainly over the next six weeks is, is, is um, somewhat negative. Um, I mean, we do expect to see further quantitative easing, further monetary policy easing. And that in itself is something that could put further downward pressure on, on the currency, albeit that, that should be expected. The Bank of England has also started talking a little bit about negative interest rates. Now, that's not something we expect to materialise. But nevertheless, over the short term, it's something that is also weighing on the currency. And on top of that, as I said, we have seen Brexit negotiations, which really have got nowhere 
Um, and the next um, six weeks really is a point that, that should have seen um, some clarity in the Brexit negotiations. There's a stop-take meeting coming between the UK and EU to see how much progress has been made. And then at the end of June, the possibility of extending negotiations and extending transition. But we don't think any of that's likely to go particularly smoothly. And I think that's going to exacerbate some of the downside risks to sterling. So, yes, we, we certainly think over the next six weeks, um, there's going to be more downward pressure on sterling. That said, and, uh, and that will obviously have some impact on inflation, over the last decade, really, the UK has been one of the few areas where inflation has been close to the central bank's inflation targets rather than continuing to disappoint the downside. And that's been helped by almost continual depreciation in sterling over that period. So it should, on the, on, on the margin, help to keep inflation around the central bank's inflation um, level rather than much lower. But I think we still see some downside risks to inflation, as we do around the rest of the world, because of the demand impact that we think is going to be the lingering impact of this coronavirus shock, even though there are some uncertainties over the supply side. Well, thank you very much, David, for, for your input. And yeah, we'll be probably asking for your views again very soon to uh, follow the situation uh, on this side of, of the channel. Thanks a lot again. I'll look forward to it. Thanks very much. This week's focus. The first one is going to be uh, the release of the flash May PMIs uh, in Europe. Uh, they are likely to show some improvement as lockdown eased across countries, but we would love to have more granularity on this. Uh, the second one is uh, the meeting of, of the Politburo in China, which is going to start uh, at the end of, of this week. As we discussed actually uh, last week, uh, it seems that uh, China so far has refrained from engaging in the massive all-out uh, fiscal um, support packages that we've seen in the West. It's going to be interesting if uh, Beijing also uh, joins this general movement. Once again this week, the versatility of the unique period we are going through invites us to be very prudent and humble about our predictions. An excellent reason to meet again next week to check in. In the meantime, have an excellent week. And if you have ideas for 1970s music that could be used to illustrate some economic points, you know, we are, as usual, very open to your suggestions. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app.